Alaska is a fairly, you know, a new state and has an opportunity to decide which way it wants to grow. You know, what do we want to be in the future? Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. There we go. Here we are. Here we are. It's uh, day 83 of the legislative session. Um, normally, we would be entering into the final week of session now uh, under the 90-day voter-approved uh, deadline that we, they will definitely not be hitting this year. So um, right now, it's kind of just kind of, it feels like Feels like a week where we're they're just kind of getting down to work a little bit. So they're finishing out the budget in the House Finance Committee, making cuts there. Surprise when you have a majority of Republicans, uh, it, it cuts happen. So a lot of cuts to Medicaid, to uh, school bond reimbursement stuff. That was a that was kind of a whole fun mess. Um, meanwhile, you know, continued work on kind of Medicaid stuff. We saw the uh, director of Medicaid services in Alaska. Uh, the, the administration that administers it kind of get get the boot sort of in a weird way uh, and, and then the continuing work on uh, legislators sort of digging into Alaska Psychiatric Institute privatization. It was a busy week, um, but it there's something that happened on Friday that I think we want to kind of focus on today. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation. I went and uh, I got together with Donna Ard when I spent about, gosh, almost an hour with her, I think. And um, it was... Uh, yeah, it was wild. You know, I would assume most people probably know who Donna Arduin is, but uh, do you want to give a quick rundown, or should I give a quick rundown of who Donna Arduin is? Um, I yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, like she, I, there's we've got some tape of her introducing herself, and maybe that's the best way to go. Before we get to that, I think um, I want to kind of contextualize the interview a little bit. So uh, maybe talk about like how it, how it came to be and stuff. Is that is that cool? Yeah. No, I think I think it's a yeah, I think it's a worthy conversation to be having. Yeah. 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 So the office of OMB reached out to me in I guess it was the middle of last week and said, hey, yeah, it'd be the office of management and budget. Yeah. Office of management and budget. And they said, hey, uh, would Friday work for you? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what are we talking about? And um, I had forgotten. But a, way back in I, I looked it up finally. And it, like back in November, when we first found out that Donna Ardwin was coming to town, I had uh, sent her like a DM on Twitter and said like, Hey, welcome to Juno. I really want to do an interview with you when you get here. Um, and so they wrote me back and said, all right, Hey, how's Friday? And I was like, I don't even, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Are you sure you're not confusing me with someone else? Like, is this like a, you know, <laughs> is this a landmine podcast and you think it's me or what's going on here? And so they like screen capped my, my message I sent and sent it back to me. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's do this. That sounds like a, an experience. And so um, it, it sounds like Donna Ardwin has been involved in a lot of these discussions. She was part of the roadshow, but I don't think there have been many uh, interviews with her. And so... Um, I, yeah, it seems like a lot of her, a lot of her sort of voice in the media so far has been kind of through, you know, explaining some X, Y, or Z policy. She doesn't seem like she's really sat down to really talk about the budget process, which you know she's in charge of, and and been kind of a key figure, but sort of not really so far been particularly like accessible, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, and it was it was um it was a tough thing for me because it was I'm I'm used to interviewing um, 
you know, like artists and people doing energy projects in rural Alaska. And I'm trying to like share out these stories and, and, um, people that you agree with. Pe- yeah. People who I'm not like ideologically opposed to. And, um, so I wanted to like come in with an open mind, but I also wanted to be critical. And I don't think I was, I don't think I necessarily challenged her enough or at the right times. And so I felt a little bit like I failed in this interview, but, um, you know, I was like, I was kind of deferential. And, um, so I don't know if I, if I got as much out of her as I could have, but I did learn a lot and, um, it was, uh, a good conversation. We'll just, I guess we can jump into it here with an introduction. If we could just start with, um, maybe tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, some of the, I don't know, some of the background story that I might not know that, that got you here and, um, and explain a little bit about what this job is here as the director of OMP. Okay, well, I don't want to tell you too much about myself. I've been around a long time. They um, grew up in the Midwest and uh, actually I graduated from Duke University and went to work on Wall Street. Um, but I had an opportunity um, to go work for the governor of Michigan when I was very young <laughs> back then and uh, work in his office of management and budget. And I just ended up uh, following the budget director to New York, worked with Governor Pataki there, then uh, became Jeb Bush's budget and policy director in Florida. Did that until Arnold Schwarzenegger asked me to come to California and help him through his budget crisis. So I was his finance director and then uh, started a consulting firm with Arthur Laffer, Ronald Reagan's economist, and Steve Moore, who's now up for a Federal Reserve Board. And uh, we've been doing that for a number of years, but we advise governors on and off as well as the private sector, primarily those who deal with government and uh, economic development projects. So I was doing that until um, I met some folks who um, were working with Governor Dunleavy and helping him find staff. And I met him and up in the uh, up in Wasilla and fell in love with Alaska and and just. Uh, could tell that he was clearly a governor that was going to be a governor of his convictions and had clear direction of what he feels, where he feels the state needs to go. You just got back from a road trip around the state. I Uh, did. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you heard out there and what it was like visiting different communities? It it was great. Of course, I enjoyed seeing parts of Alaska, including Nome and uh, Fairbanks and places that I hadn't been um, down in the Kenai. Yeah, but we, you know, we were there to listen to people, educate and listen, because educating on the budget is something that, you know, we wish we could have done a lot more of before we had to put the governor, the governor's budget out, but there was a date and statute, so um, that was what it was. But uh, so educating folks on what he was doing, why he was doing it, and the most important thing is why we have to do this. I've seen the periods of shock, and it's understandable. Um, you know, would we have rather had months to put the budget together and spend a lot of time going around and talking with folks? Absolutely. But, um, you know, the uh, disruption in business and government yeah. causes conversations to happen. And getting back to going around the state and talking to people, I really feel like the conversations have started to happen. Yeah, there's definitely, there are definitely conversations happening. Do you... Do you um, did, what was your take on the people who were like protesting and um, like outside of the the uh, roadshow events? And uh, it sounded it, I wasn't at any of them, but it sounded like there were hundreds of people there at some of them. And 
um, and the story from Nome about Melanie Banky standing up in the in the middle of the room and raising her hand seemed like a pretty powerful experience where she sort of like broke the format of of the thing and turned it into more of an open discussion. Um, what what was it like for you sitting on the stage at a thing like that and and I guess looking out at, at that those those people that are a lot so, you know, that so you're first of all there there really weren't that many protesters. Um, Anchorage had the largest sort of organized crowd. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it was handful of people in Fairbanks. And, yeah, I just there's like remember. a handful of I've people. Seen, it sounded like I've there was seen hundreds. so many more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and the and the the lawn of the California Capitol yeah. in Sacramento or in Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, almost on a daily basis, no matter what the legislature is taking up, there are hundreds of people yeah. out on the lawn. So I'm so used to seeing so many more people being well, engaged. We don't have many more people in yeah. the process than, um, but the um, the the protest that at least that I saw in Anchorage was organized. It was organized by labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we've seen that before. So that, you know, sort of ironic that you have a special interest group criticizing us for working. But I don't with think it was entirely organized groups. by labor, was it? I mean, it, like it, there, there are people who... Well, there were people that were um, um, protesting climate change. So, you know, like I said, yeah. I'm used to seeing sort of that on state capitals, yeah. you know, and, every day of the week. But. And how about in Nome with the with the CEO of Coeric? So that, no, that was, that was um, really worked out very well. It, we weren't sitting on a stage. We were in a room in a church. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that, you know, the tribal leader was there and she raised her hand. And the organizers of the event had been getting, you know, um, cards, asking people to write down their questions on the cards. She didn't want to write a question down on the card. So the governor said, we're going to get to your question. We get through these cards, which he did. And then he, so he said, you can take your hand down, you know, and respectfully then asked her. And she respectfully um, stood up and asked her questions. And I thought that it was, I thought it was terrific, terrific exchange. You know, they were, I thought everyone was respectful um, on both sides. And the governor heard her and responded to her. And so I think that's the way, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, you know that's we're in the United States, and the whole point of going out is to listen to people. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it was the I think that some of the frustration came from feeling like there wasn't an avenue for for that, um, and so I I'd encourage more of that kind of open dialogue. All right, so I think that's a good place to probably uh, take a little break and unpack some things. I have some thoughts about that. Um, it's interesting to hear them continue with the. Yeah, you know, I really, I really am curious how much they believe this whole line that it's these union plants, these, and and therefore shouldn't be, you know, uh, uh, taken seriously with all this budget stuff. I mean, I, I don't. Do they? I, do you think they really truly believe that? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, at least Donna is coming from a place where she's she's coming from a much bigger states where she's worked in like California and 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 so maybe. The number of protesters doesn't seem that significant to her, but I think that people like, like the governor and uh, you know the the other Alaskan members of the administration should probably know better. Um, I don't know about discounting um, union organizers. Like that seems um, it seems like an easy way to just not listen to a good chunk of the population. The people in the unions are state employees and are probably some of the most knowledgeable people in these various fields that are going to be affected by these cuts. So you could argue that they are 
just trying to protect their jobs and their bureaucracy or, or whatever, but you could also say that they are the people on the ground doing the work, like teaching in the classrooms and running the ferries, and that maybe they have the most expertise. Yeah, I mean, these are people that see, like, firsthand the importance of, like, and the impact of their spending, right? Like, I, you talk to, you know, I guess this week we heard that Quinlan Steiner, the state public defender, um, is going to be retiring or resigning, I think, later uh, this month. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's a guy who doesn't, you know, that gets a guy that probably cares a lot about the people that the, the people that he's serving and probably is a big ad would be a big advocate for them. And maybe that's part of why he's leaving. Who knows? But yeah, it's got to be frustrating if you're in a union to be discounted in that way. Um, and I, it, it doesn't feel like um, it, it makes it feel like the administration doesn't take seriously the jobs that they're doing um, if they're not going to listen to their feedback and if they're so willing to cut them. So I don't, I don't know. It doesn't. Yeah. It seems like you want to re- respect and listen to your employees. Yeah, and I think part of it too. That's sort of. I think the the bigger part that kind of gets to me with a little bit of this, and I don't mean to like totally like shadow box with uh, the tape of Arduin, but sure. like, uh, you know, it's it's the safest place to criticize somebody when when you when they're not there in front of you. Yeah, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think this is like the frustrating part about a lot of this is that, you know, the statements like that, I think, do kind of actively disagree with what I believe, right? Like, um, I don't believe these are purely protesters. And I also don't believe, you know, I believe that the Fairbanks protest was actually the biggest one, you know, I've I've heard quotes that had 500 people there. And so kind of these like little things where they kind of I don't know, just sort of add this kind of wild accusation or summaries of other people. Um, yeah, it's a well, really it, it's really difficult to kind of battle against. And I think it sort of, you know, we kind of come to these conversations like wanting to be fair and kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. But and we're not really used to it when people are. chipping away either intentionally i was gonna say chipping away at kind of the foundation of of what we believe to be true so to if someone tells me there was no one at the fairbanks rally i saw a bunch of photos and there were a ton of people there so it's it's a hard starting point yeah and i think it it it, i don't know if it's intentional or what but i think it it makes it difficult to kind of throws you off i guess you know it's it's either misleading or it's just a different perspective and it's hard to tell which in this kind of situation. I, I felt like um, Donna was being fairly straight with me. Um, so I, I think that that's maybe her genuine perspective. Um, but I, I hope that she'll g- get out and get to know some of the state employees that are part of the unions. Um, okay, so let's uh, jump to the next clip here. And it's, it's on um, stability and spending. Just a sidebar, if you're a recipient of state services, if you're a school district, university, anybody who is relying upon state government, which uh, there's a lot in Alaska, with reserves running out and time sort of running out, you know, nobody's in a, a situation where there's predictability yeah. or, you know, or sustainability. So we've got to get the fiscal house in order for so many reasons. You want to know that there's a possibility for a job here in the future. You also want to know that there's a stable spending plan for your schools. Right. And, you know, I have hear a lot. Well, how can 
we um, have stability in our schools if we're proposing reducing the budget. Well, we're not going to have predictability or sustainability for our schools if we don't know where the next dollars are going to come from next year. So we've got to get that straightened out um, for you know yeah. all the the economy that we have and the economy that we want to have. So in this budget discussion we've been having, it seems like a lot of the framing is. Um, do we pay full of PFDs to people or do we provide government services? And it feels like we're missing out on discussion about um, oil revenue and income taxes. Do you feel like it's fair to take those off the table or like why aren't we also looking at increasing revenue? So number of number of issues there. Yeah. Um, one is the governor's proposal didn't rely on taking the, anybody's PFD. It didn't rely on any kind of tax or new tax. Right, it relied on the reducing services. The legislature appears to be. Yeah. The House is getting close to having a budget. The Senate doesn't have one yet. But they appear to be um, close to making the decision that you just laid out, which is a trade-off between state spending and people's the PFD and, and people's wallets. Um, they haven't put those other issues on the table as far as I've been able to see. Right. So you're, I think you're sort of asking me why they haven't put those things on the table. The I guess so, but the governor put, has said that they're, he's not going to entertain them at all if they do put them on the table. So, I mean, there's, you've closed off kind of an avenue, and I think that it was Senator Hoffman that said it felt like he was being painted into a corner a little bit. Well, the governor didn't put the, the dividend on the table either. Right. Um, so just to be clear, that so wasn't that, that the, wasn't something that yeah. he asked the legislature to do either. So you guys would consider it if the legislature came back with an income tax or a proposal to change the structure of oil taxes. So what the what the governor has proposed with regard to taxes as a constitutional amendment, mm -hmm. he's proposed three constitutional amendments. One is a spending limit, so it would rein in our spending. And I have to pause here just to answer another part of your question. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the legislature's apparent, well, I, uh, the House majority's apparent trade-off between dividends and state spending is a mathematical problem. And the problem with that is, as I mentioned, state spending has been growing at such a high rate. I mean, we've had 15% a year growth. No private sector can contain that. Our average rate of growth is 4.5% a year. The private sector in most states can't even uphold that level of spend. So with that level of spend, it's not a trade-off between spending and, and dividends because if we keep going at that, growing spending at that rate, dividends are going to be gone. Mm -hmm. Reserves will be gone. So it's not a, it's not, so that's I'm not a, a little a confused about that, that growth because I've seen reports by I think by this office and even and uh, and definitely by the um, legislative um, finance folks that show our spending um, adjusted per capita and for real dollars over time and it it appears that we're actually spending about the same as we were during kind of like the lowest periods in the last That's, 20 30 years well I have to is that this is sort of facetious but yeah, yeah. Um, congratulate people who can make numbers look the way you want to make them look and yeah. certainly having been so in my business I, I understand how people can do yeah. that but the actual amount of dollars that the state spends grows at a rate that's unsustainable and it's 15 percent we've had those those rates of growth i'm saying four and a half percent on average okay so let's uh stop there and unpack that i feel like it's another 
round of don't trust the numbers that you uh, that were are the fundamental underpinning of your understanding of this issue. Um, what did what, what were you? What was your take? I mean, it was frustrating because I I want to get the best information possible, and um, I thought that the information I was getting from Dave Teal's office, um, you know, they they are a they are a nonpartisan office, and they provide information to the legislature and. Uh, you know, Dave Teal's someone I, I know. I played soccer and hockey with him, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that he's doing good work on behalf of the state, and he's been there through a lot of different administrations. So it's it's hard when someone tells me that that, that data is incorrect or wrong, but I, but I um, I went back and I, I followed up actually after the podcast because I was, I was curious what she meant by that, that those numbers were misleading. And... Uh, she she clarified a little bit, and I'll just read it off so I'm not putting words in her mouth. Hold on a second here. Um, let me pull that up, actually. I don't have that ready. Uh, so she says, uh, it would be easier if I could show you in person, but Teal's chart begins at a time Alaska started spending at a significantly higher rate than it had for decades. Oil revenue soared and government spent it all. Then revenues fell, and Alaska kept spending at that same level by spending down reserves. Showing that we are spending the same amount as we were spending when revenues were high misses the point. We don't have the revenue to support it. And so she's kind of saying two things there. One is that um, Dave Teal's graph doesn't go back far enough. It only goes back to 1976. So we don't see the pre-oil boom um, spending numbers there, which are significantly smaller. And uh, she's also saying that we just there's a revenue gap, which you can see on that chart. And... Um, you know, no matter what caused it, there's a gap between what we're spending and what we're bringing in, and that needs to be fixed. And so that's kind of a hard truth, and I, I can agree with her on that on that point for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, how you fill that gap is the big issue, right? Right, and Dave Teal, when he was talking to the legislature, said there's a gap between expenditures and revenue, but I'll leave it up to you to decide if it's a revenue problem or expenditure problem. And I, I've, you know, in looking at all the information that I have access to, it, it feels like some of it is somewhat a revenue problem. Um, but certainly, we could, we can always um, adjust our expenditures too, and maybe meet in the middle. I just don't, don't feel like the that is solely one or the other. Yeah, and this is kind of a point where I wish the administration was being a little more clear about like what their end goal vision is, because you hear that point them talking about the pre-oil boom. Um, spending limits or spend, spending, not spending limits, but spending levels as maybe something we should be looking at. And if that's what they are intending, I feel like they should be more forward with it. Like, right. you know, if we really want to go back to having like a 1960s budget, 1950s budget, like, and 1950s, 1960s Alaska, like, that's a conversation we should be have. If that's what they want to do, that's a conversation we should be having. Because I feel like that's kind of the missing point here in all a lot of these discussions is just like what is Alaska supposed to look like on the other end other than this like kind of magical utopia for businesses of some kind but not dairies I guess <laughs> yeah um, are we in a are we starting to gear up for this post oil Alaska and does that look more like a pre-oil Alaska and should we be thinking about that or are we gonna or are we able to because we have saved so much money are we able to live a little bit easier than we did when we were struggling to have enough money to even be a state 
And I think another thing, yeah, important I, thing, when you talk about going back to like the 50s and 60s, at that time, Alaska had an income tax. You know, yeah. we paid for our services. Yeah, the forms of revenue, yeah. yeah. Well, that, so that's, that's I think, what is the interesting thing here. And I wish, I, I wish they were kind of more forward with it, which is like, I feel like their end goal here is to have a state where there's no broad-based tax and where they're they are able to continue to pay out a dividend and where they're able to like cut everything and i think like it's not really been proven that you can have a state without a tax but they're kind of i don't know i I think there's some level that it kind of feels like we're this experiment maybe where they want to be able to kind of create this true tax-free eden basically and um, I don't know. I guess if, if that was if that was actually the goal, and that was the stated goal, and that you know the governor's out there saying we're going to be this pro business, no tax place, and very explicitly talking about that, as opposed to like, you know, kind of hiding behind this idea where well, um, people will be able to um, do taxes. We just want them to have a voice in it. Like, no, the goal with those amendments is to make it so there's never a tax and make it impossible to pass a tax. Yeah. And make it impossible to change the PFD and make it impossible to um, spend any additional revenue. And so, like, that's their goal. I don't, I just wish they were honest about it. Because I kind of feel like if they were honest about it, that we could maybe have a conversation about that. But it's like there's kind of this sort of disconnect in here where, um, where the reality of what these constitutional amendments would do is not really being fully under or fully sold i guess and i yeah. think i think there's there's a world where people might if you had a, a, a constitutional amendment said no taxes ever uh broad-based taxes ever um people would probably vote yes on that and so why don't you vote yes on that as opposed to vote yes on this kind of thing that sort of chops out people's ability to do anything i don't know yeah it uh if under the guise of having more choice it, yeah it feels very uh, grover norquist uh, he's the guy that said i don't want to abolish government i simply want to reduce it to the size where i can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the tub <laughs> uh, yeah all right let's move on to the next little bit here so we did um what i call core based budgeting mm-hmm. we started with our all of our agencies prioritizing all of their programs and spending and then going and, and, and saying, you know what, maybe there are some lower priority programs that aren't things that we can afford in this fiscal climate. Uh, we also went through and we talked about metrics and outcome measures. We went through and said, what are we getting for our money? So really analyzing what we've been spending rather than just trying to determine what else we should spend money on without reflecting back on what we're doing, what we're getting for the money. Yeah, so that core-based budgeting process, you, you developed kind of a list of priorities in each department. Um, have you shared those with the legislature or the public? I, they either have been or are going to be shortly. Okay. And they were, they were the agencies, you know, all of our agencies going through. Yeah. Really having to, and, and, and you know what, think about it. I mean, do it with your own family, do it with your own business. And it's, a, it's quite, an, quite an eye-opening exercise. In some cases, because of the money that's been flowing, it was flowing for so many years here, things were added to agencies that were duplications of other agency um, functions. Sometimes they were just things that they don't do. Yeah. You know, we call them in business core business processes. But, you know, if you're an agency whose core business is to regulate the environment, for example, and then there's some programs that are added to you that don't have anything to do with regulating, 
the environment. You have to hire a whole different set of people, a whole different skill set. Sometimes takes huge amounts of management time for smaller programs. Um, so we, we've evaluated all of those things and yeah. said they're just some things it, that we shouldn't be doing. It seems like that would be really valuable to share with people so they can understand some of the, the fundamental process that went into this you know, budget. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I remember uh, watching some of the House finance meetings very early on when you went and, and presented, and, and uh, Tammy Wilson, I think, requested those from you and you said you get them to her, but I, I don't, I haven't seen them yet. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I'll follow up. I know okay. that that our folks had, had promised them to the legislature yeah. as soon as, you know, I think the agencies just wanted to make sure that they, now that they'd been here for more than a month, that they were evaluating and continuously reevaluating them, which we will continue doing. Yeah. And when we propose a budget next year, we're going to have those programs laid out, the priorities laid out, the outcomes for all of them, the goals for where we want to go in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, do we want to improve our le reading levels? Do we want to improve the um, the time at which we get permits out the door? Yeah. Um, do we want to reduce the cost of licensing and regulation? So will you be incorporating public feedback into that process or is that an internal process? No, it will be, we will incorporate public feedback. So. This is going to be a continuous and a continuous feedback process. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm, I feel like I'm sort of setting up some of these clips, um, but uh, before we're talking about them, but um, this clip again is another one that I think is really worth unpacking, but we're talking about priorities, right? Which is, I think the next step in this, what does Alaska look like? Do we have, you know, where do we prioritize things? And I think you kind of are getting on it in this, this clip with, with her is that it's not it's not been very clear like what those priorities are or how we're even making those decisions and yeah and, um, and it feels occluded like it feels um it feels like a little bit hidden from public view and these are uh these are like the fundamental building blocks of their budget and they haven't shared them with the legislature they haven't shared them with the public and so i don't understand how but she said she did well no she didn't say she did she said she thinks they may have and if they haven't, oh. then they will soon. And they, and I actually went and talked to Tammy Wilson, uh, or you know, co-chair of House Finance. She said they have not received those. So, that, I mean, there's no, those are not available to you or me or to even the legislature. Fun. Yeah. But they, she thought they might be though. So that's just credit for that. Well, I, I mean, that might not be no. her job to is you know maybe she told someone yeah. to drop those off and they just didn't get there. But it's, you know, yeah. I I don't it's I. I don't want to like attribute malice to this as much as as much as it may appear sometimes that that is the case. I um, I just hope it isn't. I I like to have kind of like optimism and and good faith. Um, and you know sometimes that gets me into trouble, but I think it's a better way to operate. Yeah. So one one thing I was able to. I find my way to in interviewing her that that I think I had some success with was was starting to kind of share my own personal story and I wish I'd done more of that. I think that you know there's no one that knows more about my personal experience than me and um I I think that that's the kind of when when you listen to people giving public testimony or you um listen to people trying to make an argument for some state service just hearing how they are affected by that is um is one of the most powerful things that that you can do. It's not just, you know, it's not statistics. It's a person's individual experience and how they're affected by it. So whether that's Medicare or whatever, but, um, 
this is just me talking about being a small business owner. So I'm a, I'm a small business owner. I have a comic book shop downtown here. And, um, you know, when I run into, you know, situations where revenues don't match expenditures, uh, I re really have to hustle. And, and um, I do make I do make cuts, but measured cuts, and then I also really try to increase revenue. And I, I feel like that's part of what we're part of the discussion here that we're not talking about is like how the state increases revenue. And you talk about economic growth in the private sector, and one of the problems we have here in Alaska is that our state revenue doesn't scale. If our population doubles tomorrow, that means our dividends have and our services have. So how does how does this how's your long-term vision work if if, if the private sector does take off and the population booms, what happens to the state government then? How, do you, how does this scale? I'm going to start with um, you as a small business sure, owner because sure. I think that's oh, it's a terrific question. And when um, people ask the question, well, why don't you just increase your revenues? Well, the state saying we're going to tax or take dividend money would be the same as you saying to your customers, I'm just going to raise prices on everything. Which I've had to do before. Which you've had to do, but there's a point, mm -hmm. right, where you're going to stop selling. There is, yeah. Your comic book. So, um, so the state has limited ability to do that before it will actually hurt. Yeah. It's it's economy Are we talking about and the Laffer state curve? services. <laughs> you know about that. Oh, that's. Well, I, mean, that's I, I actually think that's but, really fascinating. Like that, there's this idea that, it, you know, if if the state wants revenue and increases taxes to a certain point, it starts getting diminishing returns because but, if you if you tax at a hundred percent, there's no incentive to do any work, which I you know, I, right. I can get on board with that. It's but true. Let's, let's go to the second yeah, part yeah. though. Go ahead. Because you will do other things though than yeah. just raise your prices. Yeah. You will do things to make your product more appealing to your sure. customers, maybe a wider variety of product, right? You tell me. The way we do that as a state is not um, by coercing money out of people's pockets. It's by improving our product and making it more desirable. Which gets back to the governor which gets back to the governor saying we need to expand the economic opportunity, expand um, the our our economic landscape is our product is will people come here? Will they bring their investment? Will they bring jobs with them? That's the product that we're we need to improve and sell in order to increase our revenues beyond just raising prices on people. Sure, but we're not, like, I mean, I don't know what industries we're inviting in right now. I mean, are we just talking about oil? Like, it's back to the, the vision for Alaska, you know, post-budget and the future, yeah. which is making our product, making Alaska, you know, open for business which is there's a lot of things that we're doing. It's certainly the budget has grabbed the headlines, yeah. but with, with regards to regulation, the governor talks a lot about how you know we can break, bring down the cost of electricity. Uh, we're a high cost state for a number of reasons. So we need to bring that down in order to attract more quote unquote customers you know, to the state. And the more people that we bring in who are producing and working isn't gonna benefit state government as a whole. But again, it gets back to that problem of like it doesn't scale. Like the more people we bring in that are producing, the more our services are spread thin. How does your how does your well, product scale? I think the governor would say that he hopes that he gets to the point where we have a thriving economy 
and actually have a government that's small relative to our private economy that we need to look at where we would have revenues and of course under his constitutional amendments he, we'd be asking people to make those decisions um, by a vote. But that's, that's a good problem to yeah. have. We don't have that quote-unquote problem right now because our private economy is not su sufficiently large to service the size of government that we yeah. have. So, so uh, you want to roll back some of these regulations and government um, to create that problem and then solve it with some sort of revenue measure. In the future, yeah. and you've probably heard the governor, Commissioner Tangeman, you know, talk about that. Um, certainly, mm -hmm. certainly he's open to that in the future, but it's not what he proposed now for those reasons that, yeah. that I laid out. Okay, let's stop there. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about real quick is that, you know, I've, I've had this idea or had this concern about whether or not I would see, if whether or not I'd be capable of, like, seeing the administration trying to do something good. Um, because I feel like our kind of prime spot right now is to be skeptical about a lot of the stuff that they're doing. But um, mentioning lowering the price of energy, I think, is a really good and big deal that somebody could do that would be, um, I think, fulfill a lot of my concerns, which is, um, you know, it's not necessarily like heavily weighted in favor of any one person. I think low energy prices can benefit an entire community. Like I came from Fairbanks where um, most of our energy was coming from diesel or, or coal, so either you had extremely high prices or extremely high environmental damage um, from one or the, one or the other, and um, so there's high costs associated with both of them. And and I think having lower cost energy would make a huge difference. You kind of look at um, a lot of these communities where um, costs of energy just just eat up huge amounts of the budget. You know, they they talk about a lot with the education. Oh. You know, very so little of it ends up in the classroom, but a lot of it ends up in the furnaces, actually, at a lot of the schools. And um, so I think that's one of the things that could really change. I think, like, I go back to the vision of Alaska sometimes, and I think one of the biggest misses that we've made is not building something like the Watana, Watana Dam. And it's like setting aside, again, the environmental concerns with it, but, um, you know, something like that would provide, you know, ideally, you know, a large amount of low cost kind of stably priced energy for a long time. And I think though that's something that, yeah, that's like a real priority. I don't, I haven't heard about how they're going to do any of that. There's, I've never, haven't heard any plan beyond them saying low cost energy could be a priority, but something like that is something that's good that would, I think, make a big difference for Alaska. And I think that could would be something a lot of people could get on board with. Again, I don't see it actually happening, but those yeah. are good words at least. I mean, it's I it, give them credit for that. At I guess. the same time, as as they're saying, let's reduce the cost of energy. The administration and the legislature, to be fair, are teeing up power cost equalization to kind of get chewed through, right? right. I mean, they're they're not repealing it or stealing that money this year, but they're really trying to change the structure so that they can get at it a little easier in the future. And. And I think that kind of gets to a little bit of the problems people have had with um, Donna Arduin as the non-Alaskan a little bit, is that like PCE is there because you, you can't build a dam for all these little communities. Like it's just kind of large scale um, infrastructure projects like that just aren't kind of uh, doable at that small of a scale. And so the idea would be that you set a bunch aside a bunch of money and then it can spin off like an endowment. Yeah. Um, funds for for other programs and or for for you know direct uh, heating assistance costs so it, it's kind of this community's 
it's in in place of being able to build a dam we've we've came up with this system and i think um putting it up you know setting it up to be on the chopping block i think it, it does sort of speak to the lack of like historical knowledge with it because you know if you look at it in a vacuum yeah maybe that's a maybe it doesn't make sense but if, in the broader context of you know we've built a dam for all these communities and that is their form of power cost equalization and they already got it but um I think it misses that context. Yeah, and it's also just gets back to this question of like, who is this budget for, right? So, is it for Anchorage right. and the Matsu, or is it for Alaska? And 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 I, you yeah. know, I didn't and, ask these questions, and I wish I had. It, it's it's a little bit unfair for us to to ask questions now that I didn't ask during the interview. I wish I had like a hundred more that I wish I had asked, and I and I wish I'd been a little bit more critical um, during the interview. But that's just how it goes, I guess. I think know. that's kind of the nature of these things. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that you know, you we talked earlier about the kinds of interviews you've done in the past, and you know, I think I've been thinking about it a lot too. In the interviews that I do, I've done in the past, and like you know, broad vast swath of them are, are newspaper stories where I you know I am you know, newspapers are in a large part you know um, they're there to you know kind of hold truth to power and everything like that, but a large part of it is kind of boosting the community and looking for positive things. You know, so oftentimes you're writing about stuff where. You know, you, you agree with the person, um, and you you aren't. You're just trying to share a story. Frequently, yeah, yeah, and you're not frequently sort of going up with somebody who, like we said, you know, is kind of challenging the basic tenets of your reality. Um, uh, yeah. So, and I think I, I really, and I do, I think your point though about kind of understanding who this budget is for is really important, and I think that I think we kind of get it at some of that in this interview. Where you know it's it's kind of the 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 panacea for all of life's problems for Dunleavy's and Dunleavy's mind is a is a good you know probably good job in in somewhere in the uh, resource industry you know his his daughters work in the resource industry uh, in mining and um, yeah I'm sure it pays pretty well for them and I think the the problem is that that those are kind of jobs that only certain people want and not everybody wants a job like that like grandma doesn't grandma who's going to the pioneer home with her 100 percent increase in rates does not want that you know just isn't going to be able to go work at a mine right um so that's that's where i feel like those are these kind of big questions we have about who this budget is for that i don't think um these ideas about uh you know opening it for business really answer all that well yeah and i think i asked that question is you know what what are these industries that you're inviting in and and she wasn't quite able to answer that and i think that that you know they don't really have a target industry aside from like let's just get more oil through the pipeline um you know let's yeah. just get more rocks out of the ground and, and maybe that's the best answer but i i wish that that's what i'd been told if, if that's what they think. I mean, yeah, and you look at a lot, you know, I think uh, Dunleavy, he met with um, Trump earlier in the, his tenure, and he had some line about how, you know, Alaska is our nation's warehouse or something of, like along those lines about, you know, referring to the oil wealth and, and the mining wealth. And, and, you know, it is, you know, there's there's a vast amount of resources in the state, but, you know, it's it's not necessarily for everyone, right? You know, those are, right. Um, it sure, it is a big part of our private economy, but it's also not, um, yeah, you got to have fiddlers and cobblers and storytellers and and grocery store people as well. Yeah, well, and what kind of Alaska would it be if it was solely, uh, it was all just resource right? If we were just a camp, right, <laughs> a resource camp. Yeah. Um, I uh, uh, one thing I want to address is I, I brought up the Laffer curve in that last segment there, and I didn't quite. It sounds like I'm super on board with it, but for 
economic policy wonks. I want to make sure I'm, I'm more clear about that. Um, so the Laffer curve. What about the no, ex- economic policy layman? Yeah. Okay. So so if you haven't heard of it, the Laffer curve is uh, this thing that was like written down on a napkin by Art Laffer, uh, one of Donna Ardwin's business partners, and it's um, this little parabolic curve. Uh, it starts at z- zero. Basically, if you are if you're govern you're a government and you're charging zero percent. Uh, tax, then you're raising zero revenue. And it, that curve increases as you increase your tax rate. And then at some point you start getting diminishing returns and then you actually start getting less and less and less back because you're you're stifling industry, right? So at 100%, uh, no one's going to work because they're paying 100% tax, right? So why would, why would you work if you have to pay every penny you make to the government? So oftentimes the Laffer curve is used to say we need to reduce taxes and we can actually make more money. Um, but that assumes that you're collecting taxes and which Alaska isn't. So kind of on the other end that yeah, legislators have brought this up yeah. that, that this budget doesn't have anything to give back to private industry. You know, we're not, there, there is no tax to cut basically. Right. And so if you look at the Laffer curve and you're a little more objective about it, instead of trying to use it as a tool to reduce taxes, you know, that's actually my complaint about the Laffer curve is that oftentimes it's just sort of used to as a let's cut tax thing, like shorthand for let's, let's cut taxes. But if you have no revenue because you're not charging any taxes, it's it's an argument to increase taxes. And so I wanted to ask her about that. I didn't get a chance to. Uh, and that's just my uh, over overly wordy way of explaining it for anyone who is who cares about that kind of thing passionately and want and I just didn't want to head off any uh, Laffer curve arguments ahead of time, but maybe I'm just making more. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Um, so moving on, uh, one of the things that she talked about in that segment was Alaska's product. She talked about, uh, our product being, uh, basically that we're trying to sell the state to businesses. We're trying to get them to move in and, and to engage and to create an economy here. And, and that our product is a good business environment, right? So I, and the tough thing about that that I, that I was trying to point out is that like our product doesn't generate any revenue. And I mean, unless you're talking about oil and it seems like mm-hmm. you want a broad-based economy that does generate rate, that does generate revenue and scales. So if we do bring in a whole bunch of businesses and they're all thriving, that the state revenue scales appropriately so that we can fund services that all those businesses rely on. Yeah, I think it's a good point too. I I think about that a lot with like, you know, what kind of industry do you want to get growing here? If you had Alaska's, you know, seven hundred and forty thousand people and you spread them out over the entire country, like what kind of business could you actually run with that kind of customer base? And I think um, that that you know that's that's kind of I think some of, some of the big disconnect here is this kind of lack of understanding of like the big kind of like fundamental problems like you know like energy is one of them you know the cost of energy the cost of transportation are all huge issues that i I just don't feel are being properly built into a lot of these i I know models of or or ideas about what alaska can be i guess yeah i don't feel like there's a sense of like a holistic vision other than like we're gonna have a lot of businesses well what are those businesses yeah you like you look at you know like you look at colorado which has been one of their big examples of a big economic boom and, you know, it's, you know, I started doing a little bit of research on it and, you know, they don't have a lot of taxes, but they do have some taxes and they do have, um, you know, a lot of fees too. 
but they also do stuff like, I don't know, I mean, have the second highest concentration of college graduates. You know, they have a highly educated workforce. They have um, programs that are set to be basically incubator programs for um, technology businesses. Oh, and by the way, they also have an airport that everyone stops at. You know, they're centrally located with um, and and have a lot of those things that, you know, that Alaska just doesn't have. And I think, you know, there's a reason why North Dakota doesn't have, you know, other than its oil industry, I guess, it's maybe not the best example, but there's a reason North Dakota hasn't been like this sort of like durable, long-standing, you know, economic powerhouse, um, because it doesn't, it's not, it's kind of cursed by its location in some, some ways. And so there's some of those fundamentals that I think aren't being built in here because, you know, a tax rate with, you know, a, a big, expensive, uh, sparsely populated state um, with very low state services, I just can't imagine being particularly, like, um, uh, attractive for a whole lot of businesses. Like, if I was opening a tech company, I don't think there's a whole lot of reason I would come up here. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've long thought that this would be a good place for, like, a software industry to really take hold because it's not location-based and really you just need to be able to communicate and and you can communicate from here and you have this quality of life you don't need to commute you can walk out your door and be at a on a hiking trail in 10 minutes and i don't Mm -hmm. know i think there's a lot of of you know we're not going to be the manufacturing hub of the world but you know we could be we could be a place where an intellectual economy thrives and i think that 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 kind of thing could could grow rapidly you could see something yeah something like what's happening in seattle could work its way up the coast yeah, maybe tech company was not a good yeah. example, but you know, a manufacturing company certainly. You know, why don't we have, you know, a bunch of furniture makers up here with all of our, you know, lumber that we're using? Well, yeah, like, there's not no one's no one's doing it on, on huge massive scales because. But we've got some really good small businesses doing that, and those could grow. Yeah, but the, where where's their place in this budget? You know, yeah. is is you know they they are, um, just I would you know they there's nothing in here I feel like that would necessarily make it easier for them right. you know they a lot of those companies probably like are in southeast i would imagine and having all of a sudden extremely more expensive transportation via ferry you know right. would would probably probably put a damper on some of that stuff so yeah that's not gonna really help icy straits lumber if the ferry service uh goes away so all right let's uh let's go ahead and and wrap up here we've got kind of a, a final segment and um uh I'll just go ahead and play that. Your job seems like a pretty stressful one. So you come under fire a lot. There's a lot of criticism of this budget, um, both from from both side, both <laughs> from both the Republicans and the Democrats in the in the uh, legislature and from the public. How do you deal with that level of criticism, and how do you like unwind? Like, what is your <laughs> what's your secret <laughs> to to dealing with that? Well, the first part is that I've been through this before and I know that we get through it and things are okay. Um, you know, the states can will grow and thrive afterward and people will have jobs and more opportunities. So I've seen the other side, you know, coming out through the tunnel so many times that I, I understand the frustration and the fear and the things that people feel and think when a budget proposal of this magnitude comes out, but I've also seen what can happen to a state where the emphasis changes from how much can we spend in state government to how can we grow our private 
sector and private economy. And so I've, I've seen the positive results. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's very comforting. I don't take anything personally because I understand that people have to have somebody to vent. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, somebody, you, you may as well be the lightning rod because somebody's got to be, yeah. um, which is okay. What do I do besides know that um, we have a, I have a, you know, like the governor, um, I see his vision for the state. And so that's very, that's um, calming. But the other thing that I do is I walk a lot. So yeah. um, I, it, I don't know if your listeners do you know, but I live over in Douglas and I walk a lot home and I shouldn't tell you this walk over the bridge because that's great Yeah, I do that. I love getting out I mean, that's one of the best things about living here is like there's so many trails that are accessible It's just nice to get outside the trails the are air. beautiful yeah. walk up the mountains and yeah, I mean Challenging trails whether you want those or you just want <laughs> to take a walk yeah. And you're looking at the water and the mountains and I don't hopefully everyone listening isn't spoiled by them but I'll just tell you what, every day, where we're looking now, looking out at them, and everywhere I go, the beauty is just um, amazing to me. And um, I think we're fortunate to be here. And people get upset when I say we, but I, I'm here. I'm completely, my life is vested right now in this state. And, uh, and uh, so I feel like, I feel like a, a part of a, a we. So you might stick around for a while. I might, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that was an interesting um, interview. I think um, it's interesting. I think because you know it, it's difficult because you. I think people want to kind of treat people in the administration and especially people like Donna Arduin like they are, you know, cartoon villains, right? We've seen plenty of people making those comparisons on social media. I think the interviews like this um, help tell us a little more of a, a little more of a complicated picture. You know, she's obviously not this in evil incarnate, you know, yeah. and she's a person too, who likes to go for hikes and all that sort of stuff. And I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed spending some time with her. Um, I thought it was a good conversation and, you know, I, I don't agree with her, certainly, on, on much of the administration's goals, but there are certain things I do agree with. Like, I do think that we should have a full PFD and then that we should claw that back through an income tax. And, um, you know, I don't think that uh, – I don't think Donna Ardwin is uh, a bad person. I think that she's doing a job that is going to have bad – impacts on people I care about. And so it's hard to separate out those two things. Um, I'm honestly, I'm more frustrated with the governor for hiring her to come here and do this because she's very good at what she does. She's done this in so many states. And, um, you know, I don't know, I, I haven't done the research on what the impacts were in each of the states that she visited, but she seems to think that it was, you know, a tough time initially. And then it was all kind of like buttercups and roses after she got done uh, resetting their expectations. Um, and maybe you need someone to come in and take a critical look at the budget. Maybe that's a good idea, but, uh, I hope the legislature has the latitude to push back against it with their knowledge and expertise. Yeah. I think one of the things that, you know, I think we, we've talked about a little bit offline with this interview is, 
you know, just how much it kind of humanizes somebody we really want to, or at least kind of predisposed to disagree with, to kind of, you know, to believe that they have nothing but bad intentions um, going into this. And um, I think it's, what's interesting here is that, you know, we do get to see the other side a little bit where we kind of understand her better. And I think it's important for people who don't agree with a lot of these policies to understand that these people are really they are serious these people are convinced um that they they're right and that these policies will work and and you know and and maybe maybe they will you know at the end of the day you know we have a majority republican legislature um no matter what kind of caucuses have sort of formed around it and we have a governor with a line item veto so you know he can get a lot done yeah um on his own and it and it, the kind of the normal sort of um i guess safeguards or kind of uh ways to sort of check those powers are kind of not in place in the same way that they used to be you know we don't have a big three-quarter vote for the cbr draw anymore you know that's really not uh, the same it doesn't have the same kind of leverage um as it used to and, and especially when a governor um has kind of pledged to really use the line item veto power pretty broadly and we really don't know where the legislature would stand as far as reversing any of that and so i think understanding all those things in those contexts is really important i think it's important for people to take the other side seriously because i think it is really easy for people to have looked at this budget and say oh that's that's crazy that's unworkable there's no way that that would ever work and kind of assume that you know we've seen these kind of battles play out in the last few years where we kind of look at these wild cuts you know cutting the pioneer homes by a bunch, you know, um, and those all get reversed by the, the last minute. But we have a governor and a staff that you know has a history of doing line item vetoes. Yeah. And with the pioneer homes, like I remember our discussion back in, I think it was the Murkowski uh, administration when we were talking about the longevity bonus. We used to pay out cash money to people who had been in the state a certain amount of time. And I remember my dad being really pissed off that they were trying to um, sunset that program because that was something he felt like the people who built this state uh, were entitled to, that this was kind of part of the bargain. Um, but, you know, looking at it now through a historical lens, we were just paying out a lot of cash to people. And maybe it wasn't the best, um, you know, use of our state funds. So... Some of those people probably didn't even need that cash if it's just paid based on their age. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't know. It's there. You, I, I want to be a fiscal conservative, but I also want to be compassionate and uh, I want to care about the community I'm in and I want to care about the state that I live in. And so yeah, and I think that's this, okay. Yeah, that's tough. No, no, you're, jump in. Oh yeah, and so I think that's like a really important part too that it's, it's been really bugging me in the last like few weeks is while you know you and I sit here trying to understand. Um, the conservative side, I sure wish there was a conservative blog out there that was sitting down with like a union family or a single mom and really trying to understand, um, you know, that, hey, you know, these aren't people who are mooshing off the system. These are people who really do want to work and really do want to make things better and and kind of live um, the economic freedom um, that I think everyone wants and, and um, just understand them better because I feel like these yeah. cuts are easy to make when you don't have a person on the other end. They're easy to make when you kind of can dismiss them as, oh, they're just organized union thugs, you know, and they, you know, they're not, 
they're not moms and dads. And and by the way, most unions in Alaska are majority Republican, you know, party affiliation too, for the most part. And so, I Which, think I mean it's wild to me because we're so connected here. We're so like we all know each other so much, and we all you know you you look at some of these people's families, and they're all they're made up of the the whole spectrum of of the different type of of Alaskans and income levels, and um, especially rural legislators are so connected to their small communities. Um, you know, I I can't believe that that gets lost so often in our discussions. Is is our is how intertwined we all are. Mm-hmm. And I think like you know efforts like the um, House Special Committee on Tribal Affairs and, and is a really good effort to kind of bring new voices into the conversation because I think that's kind yeah. of the problem I see with this budget overall is that economic growth and economic you know unleashing business and opening Alaska for business you know those are are fine kind of words, but I guess I wonder at the end of the day, you know, for how, how broadly do those really, ex, you know, how broadly should those, do those actually end up applying? You know, do these policies just focus on deregulation or do they focus on, you know, making more opportunities for more people? They don't, they don't seem to be showing the same kind of investment for like, you know, making um, it easier for people with low income or minorities to own businesses. You know, are, are there, are those, are, are, I don't think there's a lot of those kind of policies in this budget. Um, I wish they would sort of look at economic freedom in a more broader sense. Yeah. And I, I think along the lines of how connected we are, um, there's this, this amazing, poetic, beautiful film that was, that was put out this week. And, uh, it was by Christy Nami Erickson, uh, who runs our local social justice post office here in Juneau, Kindred Post. And uh, Ryan Cortez uh, did the filming. Uh, his company is Gemini Waltz. And it's it's her look at, like, the people behind the budget, the people who are our neighbors and who are, impacted, are impacted by it. And um, it goes back to that thing that we talked about in one of our first episodes about the Alaska identity, that, that this story that we, we don't leave people on the side of the road, we don't leave people out in the cold, we take care of each other. And it doesn't feel like that's what's coming through here. So it, it um, you know, that's, that's what we want people to hear is that we take care of each other. We want people to remember that. And we want to all agree on that, I think. I think that's the, that's the coalition we're trying to build is the we all take care of each other coalition because I think that's something that is transcendent and Alaskan and doesn't have anything to do with a party. You know, Alaska in a lot of ways is kind of on the edge of the world. You know, we, we don't have, you know, an airport that everyone has to stop through. We don't have like a freeway that connects us to every other state very easily. And so I think, you know, the idea has always been, I think, is that, you know, we're out here all together and we might as well work together. And, you know, some pretty amazing things have been accomplished, I think, with that mindset. And, um, you know, I think looking ahead, projects like that love letter to Alaska and others kind of help me feel a little more optimistic, I think, about where we're going. I think that, you know, we are in a very challenging time and we're having conversations that, um, are tough and we are kind of going up against an administration that has its ultimate power with it. But I think, um, you know, coming together in these new ways will hopefully, you know, we'll hopefully we'll get it, get through it together. You know, the elections aren't, you know, that's the wonderful thing about democracy is that we're allowed to change our mind partway through, you know? Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll, we'll, uh, make an Alaskan out of Donna Ardwin. The, uh, I really liked the end of that interview. We were, 
sitting in the conference room up there on the eighth floor of the, the former Spam Can building, now the, uh, I guess, Minecraft building. And we were just looking out. You could see down the channel, and there's all these, like, ravens flying around. And and it was just, like, one of those high-ceiling, not-quite-sunny days in Juneau. And it, it was gorgeous. And, you know, she says, like, yeah, I might stick around. And, and that's, like, that's the story that's kind of as old as time is is I came to Alaska for 10 months to decimate the, the government and uh, decided to get some extra stuffs and stick around. You know, that's... Oh, yeah. Everyone's very fairy tale story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how a lot of us ended up here. Uh, yeah, let's call that an episode, huh? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, goodbye, Alaska. I'll see you later. Oh, hey, and we'll put all whole bunch of stuff in the show notes for this one. There'll be the the uh, ledge finance chart and the roadshow slides and the uh, love letter to Alaska video and whatever else we can think of that we that was relevant to this mm-hmm. conversation. Okay, have a good night. Oh, wait, I meant to ask you about wrestling. Was it awesome?